morning everyone. Morning. Lovely to be here. Um, I'm reading from 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, the whole chapter. Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geber, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical, and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gabir in Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him they numbered 600. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gabir in Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned toward Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another toward Beth Horon, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboyim facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel, because the Philistines had said, 
Otherwise, the Hebrews will make swords and spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and repointing goads. So, on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. Right, 1 Samuel 14, here we go. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son, the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitab, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. Each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sene. The cliff stood to the north towards Michmash and the other the south towards Gibeah. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saying, Whether many or by few, do, do all of you have in mind? Do all that you have in mind. His armor bearer said, Go ahead, I am with your with you heart and soul. Jonathan said, Jonathan said, Come on then, we'll cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up. Because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. They were hiding. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armament bearer, Come, come up to us. We'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armament bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into, our, into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. And we'll stop there. That's 14. Yeah, so we stopped there. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well, good morning, everyone. It, uh, it really is, is great to be with you. Thank you, Dean, and thank you, Lynthia, for, for reading that for us. And uh, a greeting to all of you at home. Really warm greetings to, to all of you who are watching this this morning. My mother always used to say when I was growing up, look, you, can, you can't be in two places at once, eh? But um, I guess lockdown brings new rules for all of us. The many Zuma will know that. And so I'm here with you and also preaching on the screens at Christchurch Waterfall at the same time. So that's just one of those things. But it really is marvelous to be with you. Listen, if uh, I see some of you had your Bibles there with you. If you have them, won't you um, uh, have them open in front of you at that passage in 1 Samuel 
chapter 13. It'll be a big help to you and to me as we come to God's Word this morning. But listen, as we come, I, I wanted to start off this morning with a little bit of a riddle. Um, so, and so here we go. Are you listening? Uh, what takes years to build, seconds to break, and is hard to keep? Come on, some of you will know. Well done. It is, of course, trust. It takes years to build, seconds to break, and can be hard to keep. Trust is not an idea that is difficult to, to understand, but it can sometimes be something that is rather difficult to do. I'm sure, I'm sure you've had the experience recently. You, you might have had it um, when you've had to trust someone. And although that seems kind of reasonable in your head, like a reasonably, reasonably easy to do, um, uh, you find it pretty uncomfortable when you've actually had to do it. Has that been your experience? <laughs> I guess in that sense, trust is, is a little bit like a golf swing. You know, when I'm out on the golf course, I, I know the mechanics of a good swing. I know what it looks like. I know that you've got to stand in a certain way. You've got to keep your head down. You've got to be able to move your hips a little bit, keep your legs planted. You've got to keep, uh, you've got to keep your fingers on or your hands gripped around that, that uh, club grip in a particular way. And it's all kind of great in my head as something to do in practice. But when you're out there on the course... Goodness me, putting those ideas into action, well, that's when golf gets a little bit more complicated. And I, and I think it's the same thing with trust. Perhaps the reason is that, that trust uh, requires you to believe the word of someone else before they've done what they've promised. For example, I mean, if, if you want to get married... Uh, you have to believe that your spouse is going to keep their vows before you walk down the aisle. Um, on, on the first day of preschool, a little kid has to believe the word of her parents when they say, we'll, we'll come back and fetch you at 12 o'clock before you drop them off at 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, and because my wife is allergic to gluten, before she eats Thai food, which she, which she really likes, she's got to actually believe the word of the waiter to say, look, there's no gluten in this green curry. Before she takes the first bite. Without trust, you can't get married, you can't go to preschool, and my wife can't eat uh, Thai food. <laughs> but trust is also essential if you want to be a Christian. Because to be a Christian, friends, you've got to believe that God is true to his word often before you you get what he's promised and like in in any other relationship there is a big difference isn't there between taking uh, between talking about trusting god and then actually trusting him huh. and and because moving from understanding to action can be so so very hard it can be so difficult God has given us a brilliant way to know if we really do trust Him, if we really do take Him at His word. And you know what it is? It's called obedience. Obedience. The way that I know, and the way that you know, and the way that God knows, if you really trust Him, is if you obey His word. When it comes to God, obedience is the test of trust. 
Now, if we turn our minds back to 1 Samuel, uh, this is true for ancient Israel, but it was especially true for God's king. In fact, it was the, the golden rule, if you like, for Saul's kingship. The prophet Samuel says this in, in uh, chapter 12, verse 14. He says, If you fear the Lord and serve and obey Him, and do not rebel against His commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you Follow the Lord your God. Good. Obedience is the test of trust. Not only for God's people, but also for God's king. Now, in 1 Samuel 13 and 14 that we just read, we actually get two stories. I wonder if you noticed them this morning. Two stories about trusting God. In, in, uh, in chapter 13, Saul is an example uh, example of someone who doesn't trust God in a crisis. And then in chapter 14, Jonathan is an ex example of someone who does trust God in a, in a crisis. So as, as, you, as you follow um, the, their stories this morning, I want you to listen and then I want you to decide which example, which example of these two guys are you going to follow? Because at the end, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to choose, okay? I'm going to ask you to choose. And with that in mind, let's pray. So won't you join me? Father, your word is good. It, it changes us from the inside out. It realigns what we want, and it informs our thinking. And we pray this morning, Lord, that it would have that effect on us in the power of your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that, well, chapter 13 begins with the newly appointed King Saul raising up an army. He kept 2,000 of the men for himself, and he sent 1,000 of the men under the command of his son Jonathan. And the very, thing, the, the very next thing we know, if you've got your Bibles there with you, uh, verse 3, is that Jonathan has already led his troops into battle, attacking the Philistine outpost at Geba. Now, now, if we'd been reading this, this book in one sitting, then, then attacking the outpost at Geba would have, would have grabbed our attention because that was the first thing that God asked, had, had told Saul to do uh, when he was about to be made king back in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel. The problem is, is that, is that Saul never did it. He didn't do it. And, and even now that he's, he's pulled an army together, he, he still doesn't carry out the attack. It's his son Jonathan who takes the initiative. He leads the men. He wins the skirmish. And most importantly, it, it's Jonathan, not Saul, who obeys God's command. Saul might be wearing the crown, but, it, but he's not trusting God like God's king should. But the more you read, the worse it gets, actually. Um, carrying on in verse 3, if you're looking down with me. The, 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 uh, then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land, and he said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become an offense to the Philistines. I think it seems that fake news was a problem long before Donald Trump got behind the microphone, don't you think? You see, it was Jonathan who obeyed God's command, but, but Saul wanted the story told with, with him as the hero. Apparently for Saul, uh, appearances were more important than obedience. 
Not surprisingly, Jonathan's attack triggered the Philistines into mobilizing their army. And verse 5 tells us that their army was huge. They had twice as many horsemen, ten times as many chariots. And it was obvious to Saul's army that, that these are absolutely impossible odds. Verse 6 tells us that they knew that the situation was, do you see it there, critical. I mean, if you're, if you're in hospital and you say to the doctor, Doc, what's my prognosis? And he says, you're critical. Then you know that you're in big trouble. So what did they do? They go, and hid, they go and hide in caves. Some slipped across the border and everyone was just quaking with fear. Saul's army was hiding. They were deserting and they were scared out of their minds. But, the, but at the end of verse 7, we're told that Saul himself remains at Gilgal. Now, now why? Why was he waiting there? Um, while, while his army was just crumbling all around him. Why was Saul sticking around at Gilgal? Well, the last thing that the, that the prophet um, Samuel had told Saul just before he was made king, back in chapter 10, was this. He says, go down ahead of me, says Samuel to, to Gilgal. I will surely come to you to, to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. The word of the prophet was the word of God. Saul had failed to trust God enough to obey his word in attacking the Philistines. Would Saul now trust God enough to obey this word? To wait seven days until the prophet Samuel would arrive. Well, it starts out pretty well. And, um, and let's not underestimate how hard this would have been for Saul to wait a whole week while his army was just kind of falling, falling apart all around him. I mean, I, mean I, I, think his, I think his intention was to trust God that Samuel would come. But the longer he waited, the harder it got. And, it, and it's okay, I think, to be honest about that. And it's okay to say that, that trusting God under pressure is a really, really difficult thing to do. It's so, so hard. You've got to believe God's word over what you see with your eyes. Has that been your experience? That that, uh, that, that often is a, is a difficult thing to do? <coughs> it's easy to talk about, about trusting God when, when you don't have much to lose. <laughs> but, but when it's something big, something that makes you worried, Something that, that, uh, that, makes, uh, that makes you anxious or afraid. Huh. Well, it's not as easy as it sounds. So at some point on the seventh day, Saul's nerve cracks. <laughs> and he decides to take matters into his own hands. Samuel is a no-show, he thinks. So I'll offer up the sacrifices instead, verse 10. But just as he has finished, who should arrive? Samuel. But Samuel. No, no, you can, imagine, you can imagine Saul having a mixture of relief and frustration. Where have you been, you crazy old man? You know, we, we almost lost the entire army. But look, don't worry, it's fine. Um, you know, I went ahead and did the sacrifices. Don't worry about it. Um, but now that you're here, tell me kind of what's next. What, what must we do next? But Samuel, if you look there at verse 11, is not impressed. Samuel says to Saul, do you see it there? What have you done? What have you done? 
Now, it's not the first time that we've heard those words in the, in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 3, when God confronts Eve after she ate from the tree, he says to her, what is this that you have done? And in the very next chapter, Genesis 4, when God confronts Cain after he's killed his brother Abel, he asks Cain, he says, what have you done? What have you done? Both of these conversations come, come about because someone didn't trust God enough to obey his word. And so even, even before we hear from Samuel, what have you done, gives, gives us a pretty good idea of what's gone wrong in all of this. Now Saul's justification in verses 11 and 12 sounds kind of reasonable. There, there was a logic to why he did what he did uh, when he did it. You might, you might even have a bit of sympathy for, for Saul. I mean, after all, he had to stop his army from running away, and he tried, he tried to wait for Samuel. You could even make the case that, kind of considering the circumstances, Saul had done the smart thing. He'd done the clever thing. So why, in verse 13, does Samuel deliver the crushing verdict? You have done a foolish thing. Well, the rest of that verse explains why. Verse 13, You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You see, friends, no obedience means no trust. And, and that makes you a fool. Because Saul didn't obey God's word to, to wait for Samuel. He actually revealed what he really believed. What he really believed, and that is that it's, it's fine to pay lip service to trusting God when nothing's at stake. But when the pressure is on, Saul's religion was, God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves, because you're dreaming if you really think that God can be trusted when a crisis comes along. And I'm sure that there were those around him who affirmed him in what, in what he did. They said to him, oh man... Don't worry, Saul. Considering the circumstances, you did the best that you could. You really did. But Samuel's verdict is the one that matters. Why? Because it is God's verdict. <clears throat> to depend on yourself rather than to take God at His word is the most foolish thing that you could ever, ever do. And for Saul, the consequences were horrific. Verse 14, because you didn't trust God by obeying his word, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. In other words, God, God will not let Saul and his family keep the leadership of Israel. Because when it comes to God, obedience to his word, friends, is the proof that you trust him. That you trust him. And verse 15 is a terrible verse. I wonder if you can see it. Saul, Saul left with this pathetic handful of soldiers that remained. But what's actually even more significant uh, is, is that he left without Samuel. Which means that he left without God. The consequence of not trusting God is that you remain alone. With no one to depend on but yourself. 
which is kind of where you were in the first place. Well, chapter 14, I think, couldn't be more different than, than chapter 13, could it? The attention shifts from Saul to, to Jonathan, to his son, and we move from excuses to action. And, and most importantly, we leave, leave, leave behind a man who, who didn't trust God, who won't trust him, for a man who does trust God. And as, you, as we have a quick look now at Jonathan's adventure, I think that there are four lessons, four lessons here for the person who wants to trust God. Now, now keep in mind, as, as Jonathan moves on to the center stage, um, Israel is still in a state of war because after Jonathan's initial attack that we've just read about at the start of chapter 13, Saul still hasn't done anything about the, the Philistines. And so ch chapter 14 begins, uh, begins with a stark contrast. What, what Saul failed to do because he wouldn't trust God, Jonathan does uh, without a second thought. He took his armor bearer and he said, let's go and spy on the Philistines. Let's do it. And you've got to love this guy. I mean, he's, he's spoiling for a fight. But the, but the narrator adds, he didn't tell his father. Now, normally for a son to keep a secret from his dad, especially if his dad is a king, would have been a bad thing. But not this time. Have a, have a look at uh, chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. Saul was staying on the outskirts, uh, outskirts of Geba under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. Now, an ephod is like the uniform that the, the priests used to wear back in those days. Um, I, I said to Chris that I should have worn one this morning. You would have been impressed. Eh? <laughs> um, he, he was a son of Ichabod's uh, Brother Ahitub, son of Phineas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. Now, you might remember, if you've ever read 1 Samuel before, um, that, that Eli was the <coughs> priest that we met right at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel when, uh, when Samuel was actually born, so back in chapter 1. But, but Eli's two sons were an absolute nightmare. They were both wicked and they were corrupt, and so God judged both Eli and his sons, took the priesthood away from them, and then they all died, which is probably a good indication that they're not the ones that you ought to try to be like. But, but before he died, Phineas had a son called Ichabod, and his name is mentioned here in, in chapter 14. And, and he was just as bad, because his name meant the, the glory of God has departed, which isn't a great name for a priest, <laughs> let me say that to you. And we're told in, in verse 3 there that it was Ichabod's nephew... Who is, now, who is now serving as a priest of Israel. So you've got to ask yourself, what in the world? What in the world is Saul doing hanging out with these guys? Let alone giving them back kind of spiritual leadership of Israel. Jonathan there, sneaking off therefore wasn't kind of breaking a lockdown curfew. It, it was because he couldn't trust his father because his his father was surrounding himself with, with the wrong people. And so the first lesson, I think, if you're taking notes, the first lesson I think that we learn from Jonathan is this. If you want to trust God, don't wait for permission. Because you may be the only one in the room who is willing to do it. So off they go. And, uh, and Jonathan and his armor bearer get to the bottom of the cliff. And, 
um, uh, under the Philistine outpost. And, and in verse 6, Jonathan says, right, let's do it. Let's, let's provoke these guys and let's see what happens. You almost expect him to start kind of throwing stones at them, don't you? Um, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Now, at first, that, that doesn't sound like a guy who has much confidence in trusting God, does it? Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps, perhaps you're going to be horribly slaughtered. But, I mean, it could go either way. But they're actually great words, and here's why. If, if, if trusting God, I think, is going to go wrong in some kind of way, um, it's going to veer off in one of two directions. Either you will doubt God and you'll say, oh, it's hopeless. It's, uh, God can't act on my behalf. Or, on the other hand, you will presume on God and you'll say, oh, God will absolutely act on my behalf. He will do what I want. And, and both extremes are wrong. Because while you don't want to doubt God, on the one hand, you also don't want to presume on Him and kind of tell Him what He should or shouldn't be doing. But do you notice that Jonathan does neither? He says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. So he's not doubting and he's, and he's not presuming. But because Jonathan trusted God, now here it is. He doesn't need the answer before he begins. Needing proof of the outcome is not trusting God. Um, it is the opposite of faith. It's what, it's what Paul calls in the New Testament. He says it's living by sight. Um, you're not trusting God at all if you demand a sign before you do anything, before you begin. You know, there are times when we say, Oh God, um, I don't think that I could obey your word in this way because I don't, I don't know what's going to happen if I do. But, but Jonathan says, look, I don't know what's going to happen if I do either. But because I trust God, I'm, I'm free to try anything. There's such, there's such freedom and there's such confidence when you're willing to take God at His word. Because the burden of the outcome doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on you. It, it depends on God. And God's good for it. Corrie ten Boom, I don't know if you heard, uh, once said this, uh, said, um, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And that is the second lesson that we get from Jonathan. If you're going to trust God, you don't need to know the outcome before you begin. But there's another lesson for us here in verse 6 that I want us to see. Uh, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing, you see it there, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Jonathan's speech to his armor bearer does sound a little bit reckless, and maybe it is, maybe it is. But it's reckless in a good sense. Jonathan, Jonathan has the freedom to try something risky. Why? Well, it's not, a, it's not a personality thing. It's not because he was an adrenaline junkie. It's not because he was irresponsible. He trusted God with such confidence because of what he believed about God. Because he knew that God was a certain sort of God. He believed that God was powerful. Do you see it there too? Save. Regardless of the circumstances. This wasn't his fight. He knew that. Um, this was God's fight. It came by His command, and it would be His 
victory. Um, God doesn't need horses or chariots or big armies or favorable conditions to achieve his purposes. And friends, we know that's true because 2,000 years ago, when we looked to a hill just outside of Jerusalem, what do we see there? We see a wooden cross that looks like a failure, that looks like a defeat. In chapter 13, Saul looked on his own power to save. He started to freak out because he was looking around and he was counting. He was saying, how many men do I have left? And um, what's their morale like? How close is the enemy? It's as if Saul thought that, that God was perhaps a little bit fragile, that, uh, uh, you know, that the conditions had to be just right. Um, otherwise, God would be a little bit out of his depth, maybe. It's what many people thought on that day that Jesus was crucified. Saul's problem and their problem was that their God was too small. And you are stupid if you trust a God that is small. <clears throat> However, I don't think that it was the size of Jonathan's faith, therefore, that made the difference for him. It was the size of his God. Um, and that's why he wasn't intimidated by circumstances. That's why he wasn't counting the numbers, because he knows God is a big God who doesn't need our help. And if you skip down to verse 23 in chapter 14, so the end of the episode, you can see that trust in God wasn't misplaced. We're told, so the Lord rescued Israel that day. God was as big as he said he was. God didn't save because Jonathan had confidence in him. That's not why this worked. Jonathan had confidence in God, friends, because he knew that God was mighty to save. That's how trust works. And that's the third lesson that we learn from Jonathan. Unless you believe that God is powerful to save, you're not going to believe that he's worth trusting. Verses 8 to 14 uh, describe the battle. <laughs> and, uh, and Jonathan's plan here is so brazen. I don't know what you thought when it was read. <laughs> so they reveal their position. And if they're told to report to the outpost, then they'll assume that this is a sign that the Lord has given them the victory. Um, so that's what they're thinking. And sure enough, the Philistines see these two Hebrews and they say to them, come on, get up here. We'll teach you a lesson. And, and what happens next is, is awesome. It's like a scene from Mission Impossible or James Bond or The Avengers or something like that. Look, I can't wait until they make this into a movie. Um, <laughs> look, they'll mess it up. So, so maybe just stick with your Bibles for now. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, they free climb this, uh, this cliff face. And then as they get to the top of the cliff face, they stand back to back. And they kill 20 Philistines. But, but here's the part of the story I think that, that's sometimes easy to miss. Why in the world does, does Jonathan's armor bearer go, go up the cliff with him? <laughs> so when Jonathan tells him of this audacious plan, he says in verse 7, do you see it there? Do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. You see, Jonathan's trust in God, friends, was infectious. <laughs> people who trust God like that are people that you want to be around. You want to be with them. And they inspire others to trust God in the same way. 
Jonathan's armor bearer didn't simply trust, uh, didn't simply follow him because he was given an order. He says, do all that you have in mind. It's, it's, a, it's a great plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. Really? Because <laughs> it, it sounds like a bit of a, a dumb plan. It looks like a bit of a suicide mission. But he says, I am with you, heart and soul. He says to Jonathan, you've captured my imagination. You've inspired me. I want to take God at his word, just like you take God at his word. I want to trust him just like that too. <laughs> so have you considered that? Have you considered that when you trust God, that that's going to be an example that will encourage others? I mean, I can teach you about God, uh, trusting God uh, in a sermon. I can do that. But we learn to, to trust God simply by kind of watching each other. And goodness me, friends, no one is watching more than I think, than at this time of pandemic lockdown. Do you agree with me? You are the preacher that your friends really need. In the office, in the workplace, at the school, wherever it is. Um, especially during these days of lockdown. They need to see you putting your trust in a big God. They need to see you putting your trust in a big God for an uncertain future. Even although you might be the only one in the room doing it. Especially if you are the only one in the room doing it. If you're a parent, if you're a parent and, and at home too, I mean, think about your kids. How are they going to learn? How are they going to learn to trust God even when the situation looks hopeless? Um, you can tell them that they ought to trust God, and goodness, you, we ought to be doing that. It's a great thing to do as parents. But what they need is for is for you to show them how to do it, because because kids kids are copycats. They they're going to follow you. They they learn by following your example, and so. Give them something worth copying. Um, they need you to be a Jonathan. They need you to inspire them and to, and to capture their imaginations. Because, friends, they will never think to trust God with heart and soul unless they, they, they see you trusting God uh, with heart and soul. Hmm. And that's the fourth lesson from Jonathan. Trust God. And your example will be contagious. It'll bring out the best in your brothers and sisters. Well, uh, when we when we read these two examples, um, uh, these two characters side by side, here's what we what we find. Saul Saul trusts God often like like we do, doesn't he? Um, it's good in theory, but but he's he's really a, a God helps those who help themselves kind of guy. He really is. Um, on the other hand, uh, we know Jonathan trusts God. How? Because he obeys God. And he obeys his word even when the situation looks hopeless. We might, uh, we might sympathize uh, with Saul, but goodness me, we want to be like Jonathan. Um, we really do. Now, I was thinking for you and for me this week, uh, trusting God is, is therefore less about what we're feeling. It's not what I'm feeling. It, it, and more about obedience. That's what it's about. 
Now, I think whilst, whilst, whilst you, you won't have a Philistine to fight, I hope, this, this next week, I think that you and I might have to trust God like this. God says that in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Do I trust Him in this? Or will I keep trying to justify myself? God says, sex outside of marriage is just not on. It's disastrous outside of marriage. Do I trust Him in this? Or will I act as if I know better? God says, I will provide for what you need. In terms of food and in terms of clothing, like I do for the birds of the air and for the lilies of the field, so that you can seek first my kingdom, That's the, so that you can do that. Am I going to trust God in this? Or am I going to worry and scramble to, to provide for myself at the expense of His kingdom purposes? Am I going to do that? I said at the start that, that when I was done, I was going to ask you to choose which of these examples you're going to follow. So, so why don't you do that now? Just where you're sitting, in your lounges if, if you're at home, in your heads, decide if this week you're going to learn from Saul or are you going to learn from Jonathan? Like most of you, I picked Jonathan too. <laughs> But the problem is with Jonathan is that I think that his example is just too good. It's just too good. Jonathan persuades me. Jonathan inspires me. But he also leaves me feeling a little bit inadequate. I don't know about you. Um, are you getting a bit of that as well? Um, what we need is a, is a third person in the story. If we're going to make progress in trusting God this week. And the Apostle Paul describes this person beautifully in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. Listen to what he says. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The disobedience of Adam makes trusting God impossible for sinners. But the obedience of Jesus makes trusting God a reality for the forgiven. His obedience makes our obedience possible. It really does. And that's how you're going to trust God this week. Even if you don't have the reckless kind of confidence of Jonathan. The next step I think for you and for me is summed up in a in, in, in one of the lines of a, of a famous hymn written by John Samus back in 1886. And it goes like this. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. <coughs> Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that where Saul failed, your son Jesus succeeded. 
Thank you that the obedience modeled by Jonathan was completed in Christ. He even trusted you to the point of death on a cross. And Lord, we know now that that wasn't foolish because you raised him from the dead to prove that trusting you is the only way to know true life. Lord, give us the conviction to trust you ourselves this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, it's been great being with you and, and you at home as well. Look, wherever you are at home or here, I wonder if, if we could stand and let's just say that benediction together as, uh, as we leave and head off into the week, trusting God because of Jesus. You know the one I'm talking about? And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go well, everyone. It's been great to be with you. Thank you. Oh, yeah.